Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Noah lived by the words of God's mouth and show us how God told Noah things that were not recorded in the Bible. This message is available for a free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Genesis 7. See, we're making great progress. We're in chapter 7. It's been a year. We're really moving along now. So hold on to your hat and fasten your seatbelt. All right. All right, let's uh, look to the Lord first in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your patience, Lord, to be our God. Your provision, Lord, and your, your perseverance to see us all the way through. And this morning, Lord, we report for learning to you. So teach us wondrous things out of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 7. Please follow along here as I read the first 16 verses. Genesis 7, 1 through 16. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days I'll cause it to rain upon the earth, forty days, forty nights. Every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floods of waters was upon the earth. Noah went in, and his sons and his wives and his son's wife with him into the ark because of the waters of flood. Clean beasts, beasts that were not clean. Fowls, every living thing that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah. And Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird after every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now, in reviewing and looking in the past there, what we have seen here so far, this chapter, chapter 6, it's not so bad we spent so much time on chapter 6 because after all it spans 120 years, but here we, that's supposed to be a joke, you know, but all right, so anyway, sorry, it's really bad when I have to tell you it's a joke, but that's okay. Uh, so we come here to chapter 7, the beginning, and this is now, looking back on it, God has, has told Noah some very, very terrifying words, that he's going to judge the world. And it just so happens that Noah lives on that world. And Noah's saying to himself, I need to be saved from this judgment. And there's only one way for me to be saved from this judgment, God. And so Noah is God-focused, and God is going to tell me, Noah thinks. God's going to tell me. And what God is going to tell tell me is going to save my life. I'm going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how I'm going to be saved from this judgment. So when Noah hears God say, build an ark, come into the ark, he's saying, those are the words that I'm going to live by. They came right out of the mouth of God. 
And so that picture for us of Noah is is very, very important because what happened in our case? We first heard, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we said, that means me. And then we heard Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And that made us afraid. And then in that state, like Noah, we said to ourselves, I'm going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And then we heard the words that came out of the mouth of the Lord in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when he said, come unto me. And we came and we were saved. So Noah and us lived by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, you look now, we are here now in, in, in Genesis 7, 1 and 2. The ark is built and now it's ready to fill the ark. So he's speaking, God is speaking now in verse 2 to Noah about the animals that should come into the ark. What two types of animals is God referring to? Clean and unclean. How many clean animals does he bring into the ark? Seven. How many unclean does he bring into the ark? Two. What's the difference between a clean and unclean animal? Okay, there's a difference. (laughs) So, all right. Now, you tell me what's wrong with this picture. You know, so you tell me what's wrong with this picture. I'm knowing now, you know. And you're sitting there and you're saying, I've got to fill this ark with all these animals. Oh, I gotta have seven of the clean and two of the unclean. I gotta get a pen. I gotta get some paper. I gotta put on this side of the paper all the clean animals and this side of the paper the unclean animals. I gotta fill it up. What's wrong with that picture? He didn't know why he didn't have to go looking for it. Okay. So he didn't know what was clean and what was unclean. All right. So, okay, you see it. He didn't sit there and say, I gotta make the unclean. Wait a minute, I don't know what an unclean and a clean animal is. See? You don't think so, huh? Alright, so he didn't sit there and say that. Now, what books in the Bible explain to us what a clean and unclean animal are? Huh? Yeah, the one in Leviticus, Leviticus eleven, one in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy fourteen, big elaborate list. Who wrote those? Moses, right. Moses wouldn't come along for another 800 years. So all that we've read from Genesis 7-2 up until this point in Genesis 7-2, we don't read a verse that says, and God said to Noah, clean animals have split hooves and chew the cud, and unclean animals have split hooves and don't chew the cud. We don't read that. And after God said this to Noah in Genesis 7-2, we don't read a verse where Noah says to God, I don't know what a clean and an unclean animal is. So, because you don't have those two verses before and after Genesis 7-2, what's the only conclusion that you can draw about how Noah knew the difference between an unclean and unclean animal. What's the only conclusion that you can come to? When they showed up on his door. Well, that's one conclusion. <laughs> but he's got a list, and he's checking them off. Yeah, go ahead. God knew. The numbers. The numbers? Yeah, seven and two. Oh, you mean seven showed up and two showed up? Is there no other conclusion <laughs> that you can come to than that? How about <laughs> that God told Noah and he didn't tell us? Is that possible? Sure. <laughs> that God told Noah and he didn't tell us. And does this uncover something for us that's maybe even a little more profound? Maybe there are things that God told the Old Testament saints that he didn't tell us. Is that possible? Is it possible to think that we don't know what the Old Testament saints knew and what they didn't know because we're not told what they knew and didn't know? 
And so when someone says, well, those Old Testament saints, they didn't know anything about the Lord Jesus Christ. How could they be saved? We don't know what they knew about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we don't know how God told Noah uh, there would be seven unclean, unclean, unless they all showed up on his doorstep. But I'm sure Noah had a checklist, because that's the kind of person Noah was. Very carefully, built an ark. So when the Lord Jesus Christ says in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and were glad, and then we hear something like that, and he says, now wait a minute. We know from the Bible everything that they knew and everything that Abraham knew, and we don't understand how Abraham could have seen the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoiced in it. The point is, we don't know. And the point is, God doesn't feel obligated to tell us because we're on a need-to-know basis. And so when it does not say that Noah was told the difference between the unclean and the clean animals, but he was told exactly what to do to go get them, We're not told how Noah knew or what God instructed Noah about clean and unclean animal because it's just not important for us to know that. And so the truth from this, from this point about this Noah and the clean and unclean animals is that if there's only one person for anyone to be saved by, the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Old Testament saints knew him. And how they knew him, we don't know. Not important. All right, now, so we're standing here at Genesis 7-1 and Noah's looking at the ark And he says to himself, that's a big boat, right? (laughs) He looks at the ark and he says to himself, now that's something, that ark. And he's thinking there and he's, he's thinking back when he first heard the terrifying words in Genesis 6, 13, where God said to him, the end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth was filled with violence through them and I will destroy them with the earth. He's thinking of that. And he's thinking, the end of all flesh? I'm flesh. That sounds bad for me. And, it's a, and he hears those words, he's going to destroy them with the earth. I live on the earth. The earth is my home. That's too close to home. And then after that, terrifying words in verse 13 of chapter 6, he hears verse 14, where God says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make it, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Now, where we are now... In chapter 7, verse 1, like I said, it's 120 years later. And Noah thinks to himself as he looks at this ark, and he says to himself, God told me to build this ark 120 years ago. God told me to build this ark before there was one drop of rain that ever hit the earth. God had a way in his mind for how I was going to escape the judgment before the judgment came. And Noah thought about that, how God had all this in mind beforehand, and he thought, there's a word that comes to me. Noah could say this, there's a word that comes to me right now, and that is the word provision. God provided. Noah thought about how God anticipated the need for salvation from the flood and made provision 120 years ago. Now, in thinking about what Noah was thinking there about the word provision, it's the concept of taking care of a need before the need comes. And so Noah would have been amazed at just the concept that God is providential. God is a providing God. He anticipates the needs, and he works to take care of those needs before they come. That's what God did for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as God had an ark in mind 
before a single drop of water hit the ground. So God had the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ in his mind before any man was ever born. That's why it says in Revelation 13:8, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Effectively slain from the foundation of the world. And that's why this whole concept is why when Abraham, in the most ten, one of the most tender scenes in the Bible of a father-son love, and they're walking together, both of them have this commitment to not hide anything from each other. And Abraham is going up the hill of Mount Moriah, knowing in his mind that God has called him to sacrifice his son. And it says in Genesis 22, 7, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham says in verse 8, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went, both of them, together. That same word that was in Noah was thinking about as he looked at the ark, that God had provided. That same word Abraham was thinking about God as he went up there, God provides. God will provide. That is who God is. He is a providing God. We need to trust my son Isaac in God's provision. Don't know what it is, but God will provide because that's who he is. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the lamb provided. We see, you might want to turn to this too, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is a verse I couldn't remember last Sunday, Sunday before anyway. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Because in this verse, we see also here God's provision. And it's a provision during our temptation. And it says here that there hath no temptation taken you, seized you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What is God's provision in this verse called? What's it called? It's a way of escape. A way to escape. And if God does not provide the way of escape, what attribute of God is on the line here? What attribute of God is on the line? Faithfulness. His faithfulness. Why does God provide the way of escape? Because God is faithful. So the Lord Jesus Christ can be titled also God's way to escape or God's way of escape. God's way for man to escape an eternity in hell judgment. And when Noah looks at the ark, some people saw a boat. Noah saw in the ark God's way of escape. Tom, today you talked about how the ark was God's way of escape. I'm a police officer, and thinking about escape made me think of how, when I try to apprehend somebody, that they try to escape from me in my custody. Now, is there a biblical analogy to prisoners trying to escape? Yeah, it's very interesting. When you really consider a prisoner, you know, there's stages that a prisoner goes through. The first stage is where he's he's caught or he and so when prisoners are threatened with being caught the first thing they think about is running how can i get away and we are we are guilty before god as sinners and so outside of the lord jesus christ we try to run away from god and yet we we can't do it because proverbs 15:3 says the eyes of the lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good 
So we cannot run away from God, and therefore we get caught just like a prisoner would. Then the next thing that happens to a prisoner once he's caught is that he's charged. He's charged with the crime. And the first thing that a prisoner thinks of when he's charged with a crime is he thinks of how, I'm not really guilty. I'm not guilty. In other words, he tries to think about, well, he really didn't do it, or, you know, he, he didn't really think those thoughts, really didn't say those words as far as God is concerned, and really didn't do those things. But God says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the charge is very clear from God of sin, of breaking God's commandment. As it says also in uh, Ezekiel, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But the charge is sin. And then the next stage that a prisoner goes through is that he's tried. He's tried. And here, Spiritually speaking, when man is is tried, when we are tried, when when the balances, then we think about, well, it's not so bad. After all, I'm human. Everybody else does it. Come on, I'm not perfect. And it's trying to water down so that the trial will not come back with the verdict of guilty. But it says in Romans 2.2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So in other words, God is not persuaded by, it's not that bad, it's maybe a little gray, it's a white lie, it's it, it, everybody else is doing it, come on, let's look at it, let's grade on the curve, let's not be so absolute about it. God is does not judge that way. That's why it says in Romans 2, 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth. It's not according to relativism, it's not according to the ethics of the situation that was presented or the situational ethics. It's not according to how everybody else is at the time. It's not, a, it's not according to that. It's according to absolute truth. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. So the trial goes poorly for the prisoner. Then the next step is convicted. The prisoner is convicted. Now, whenever the time for uh, conviction comes, then the prisoner thinks about trying to distract the judge with all the good things that he's done in life. You know, uh, all the old ladies, oh, judge, if you could see all the old ladies that I helped across the street, all the times I volunteered for the Red Cross, all the, t- all the good things that I did, those are the good works. But yet, it says in Romans three ten through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So as far as God is concerned, he looks at that and he says, well, that's uh, very good, but we're not having a trial over whether or not you helped old ladies across the street here. We're not having a trial over whether or not you volunteered for the Red Cross. We're having a trial over the sins that you have committed, and we're staying focused in this court on that issue. And when it comes to that issue, you are not righteous, as it says in Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one, quoting from Psalm 14 as well. And so God is saying here, and, and furthermore, he said, there's none that understandeth. There's no one who's seeking even after God. They've all gone out of the way. So the conviction goes very poorly for the prisoner. And then finally comes the sentencing. 
And the sentencing, as far as God is concerned with the sinner, is from Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the due reward, just like that thief that was on the cross when he spoke to his other companion thief there who was throwing into the Lord Jesus Christ into his teeth, as it were. He says, you know, if you are the son of God, then come down for the cross and save us also. And the, the his friend said, what are you doing? His friend said, can't you see that we are receiving the just reward for our deeds, the just due. The just due for us as sinners is death. And that doesn't just mean a cessation from consciousness, an annihilation. Death is a state. It's an eternal state. It's a state that is associated with what we think is associated with death. What is associated with death? The process of death is painful. The process of death is with anguish. The process of death is with despair spare and no hope. That process is what is the description of hell that never ends. Hell is a place where pain never ends. Hell is a place where anguish of soul never ends. Hell is a place of deep regret. I should have done this when I was alive. That's all associated with death. Hell is a terrible place because it's a consciousness for eternity. And the wages of sin is this consciousness of death that goes on for all eternity. Eternity. The wages of sin is death. That is the sentencing. And then the last step for the prisoner is the imprisonment before there is the actual, the imprisonment there. And it says here in Hebrews 2.15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The lost man has a fear of death. He can say, I'm not afraid of death. He's lying. He can say, I can look death straight in the eye and say, no problem for me. He's lying because the fear of death is very real. And what the fear of death does is that it causes a person to be all their lifetime imprisoned, held in a bondage because the king of death is Satan. And he is the ruler, uh, so to speak, over this world and over the the realm of darkness and death, and he uses the fear of death to keep people in submission, to keep them in bondage. But God has a way of escape, and this is the good news. God understands that we as sinners have gone through all this. We've been caught. We've been charged. We've been tried. We've been convicted. We've been sentenced, and we are now in prison. But God in his great mercy, it's that's why in Hebrews 2.15 says, and deliver them. Why? And that's such a wonderful term because the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is based on that word deliver. Why? Because the angel said, thou shall call his name Jesus for he shall save or he shall deliver his people from their sins, not from someone else's sins, but from their sins. So when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, He looked at every sinner and he said, I am here. I have come down from heaven to deliver you from your sins, to deliver you who have been caught, to deliver you who have been charged, you have been tried, you have been convicted and found guilty, you have been sentenced and waiting the sentence, which is eternal death of hell. And you who are now in prison through the fear of death, I came down to deliver you. And how did he deliver? He delivered by taking the sentence on himself. By taking the actual execution for the crimes, death of 
on the cross. And what happened is that there was on the cross when he died, for us, there was the death of death. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we find on the cross that he, when he made that great atonement, we can look at him and say, you represent for me the death of death. Death no longer is my end. Death no longer is my destiny for all eternity. Why? Because my death died on the cross with you. And now I am delivered and I have this great escape, escape from what I deserved because the Lord Jesus Christ died for what I deserved. He died for my sins. He took the wages that were not due him. The wages of my sin he paid. He paid a debt that he did not owe. He paid a debt that I could not pay, thanks to his name. Thank you for joining us today. Please remember that you can go to friendshipwithgod.org to download a free copy of today's program. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go to our other website, israelrestoration.org. That's israelrestoration.org. Now, if you'd like any Tom Cantor resources, materials, books, or videos, you can get them free on our websites. In fact, we have a Tom Cantor store where you can purchase Tom Cantor materials, his books, his writings, uh, but many of the products are available free for viewing, for downloading. If you'd like a hard copy of those things, uh, they are available through the bookstore online. Also, you can give us a call at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Now, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, which we've been learning about out of Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8. And Noah carried out the message of hope and gladness to lost Jewish people. So if you know any lost Jewish people around you that would like a free gospel gift, call us at 1-800-247-3051.